Hello and welcome to the FizzSock podcast. Today we are joined by Professor Moriarty. Hello, pleasure to be here. So we are sat down, me, myself, myself and Nikhil are sat down with Professor Moriarty to discuss a bit about his research, a bit about his module, his journey through physics and, you know, some of his hobbies and interests outside of work. Um, so welcome, Professor Moriarty. Thank you. So what sort of things have you been doing with your new nanoscale microscope? Oh, thank you for asking about that. <laughs> take up the rest of the podcast. Yeah, so we Did have you want to talk about that one by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it? It's amazing. I haven't had the pleasure, actually. Very happy to show you around that. And uh, it's on our anytime. TikTok if you ever want to have a little nose. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Nice plug. Nice segue <laughs> there. Um, yes, yeah, so we had that delivered towards the tail end of last year, December time. We were installing, getting it up and running. Been using it in earnest over the last uh, few months. It's a really, really nice instrument. How long does it take to get that sort of thing set up? It took, so the entire process of getting it, of unboxing it and getting it up and running was probably in total six weeks. One of the things you have to do is bake it because it's in ultra high vacuum. So you have to heat it up to about 140 degrees for the best part of a week to drive off most of the the condensed water that's on the inner surfaces. Uh, So that takes a long time. You have to heat it up, let it cool down. And then it's just getting to grips with the instrument as well. It takes a little bit of time, but it's um, it's noise flow, which is really, really important for scanning probe microscopes. You want the vibrational noise to be as low as possible. It's very impressive. It's at the bottom of a big magnet. It's coupled to all this other gubbins outside. You've seen the system. It's mm. very, very big. It's huge. And still, the noise floor is, um, oh, what's the best way of describing it? Sub about a hundredth of an atomic diameter is where it's where the, the noise level is. And is that what you need it to be, or do you need the noise lower? No, we need it to be at about that level. As lower than that is great, but mm. that level is... is I just mean, ideally, there would be no noise, but yeah. it's not going to well, happen. Well, yeah, but that's that's the difference between theoretical physics and experimental yeah. physics. I was about to say, I'll keep my mouth shut as um, as I've been doing a lot of um, theoretical recently. So. Yeah, It's interesting, though, on that noise point, as physicists and as scientists were always worried about getting the noise down. Yeah. Sure you get, but there's an awful lot of information in the noise you think oh, about really? the frequency spectrum of noise you've got pink noise white noise brown noise and for, for us for example one key um, uh, sort of demonstration of that is molecules diffuse around the surface so sometimes those molecules um, diffuse around so much that you yeah. can't track them with the STM tip they're just diffusing under the tip but if you park the tip and yeah. then look at the noise and in particular the spectral characteristics of the noise, you can get a lot of information okay. on how those molecules are diffused. Interesting. So one context you want to get rid of the noise, another context you want to actually get as much of that noise as possible. So. I guess noise is just what you're not measuring, but if you stop and you start measuring the noise, patterns can come out of that noise, I guess. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Because the noise has to come from somewhere. Exactly. It? Yeah. And it's telling you about physical processes yeah. that you initially don't think are important, but turn out to be very important. So what is the nature of the signal that you're getting? Is it like literally just an AC signal? It's a qu- So the nature of the signal in the microscope we're using. So we use scanning probe microscopes. So sharp, probe, yeah. close to a surface. I don't know why I'm moving my hands around. <laughs> no, it, it makes it more anyone listening along at home, Professor Moriarty is <laughs> close to drawing up on the whiteboard for us. Um, so sharp tip. And there are two modes, two key modes we operate in. Uh, scanning tunneling microscopy, where the signal is the tunneling current, yeah. which 
Um, Freya's nodding because she's done this <laughs> in quantum world. Have you done in quantum world? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm a third year. Yeah, so. exactly. So you did in quantum third year. world last year. I'm a fourth year. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, your fourth year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you just forgot there because mm. it's the start of the new mm. year. So, yeah, two years or so as part of the, um, when we were all in lockdown, you did in quantum world as well. So yeah. Those yeah. YouTube videos were phenomenal, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um the so that's STM scanning tunneling microscopy is based on the quantum mechanical tunneling current, but then we also do atomic force microscopy, where as you suggest, that's an AC technique where we're os- stop that where we're <laughs> oscillating the probe and we measure frequency shifts of yeah. the of the probe and that tells us about the force. Well, so would that be using gradient. would that be using the same probe? Yes. Yeah, just using the same probe in a different way. Precisely. So you can do to do the two techniques in parallel. Oh, at the same powerful. time? Yeah, at the same oh, time, wow. with the same sensor, yeah. Exactly. I suppose that's what you get when you've got such a powerful sensor and a massive bit of machinery. Yeah, yeah. you want to get as much out of it as possible, definitely. Well, especially yeah. since you took six weeks to set it up. Yeah. <laughs> how long would you be able to use something like that for? Like, How long would it be before it's no good anymore? That's a great question. So there are a number of aspects of that question. If we're measuring at low temperature... Uh, then it's not a question of the sensor so much as the whole time for the, the helium. So if we're measuring down at 300 millikelvin, we've got about 60 hours to do our measurements. If we're measuring at 4 kelvin, we've got this big vat of liquid um, helium, 110 litres, which is very, very That's expensive. A lot. I was about to say how expensive is a helium. Lot of, uh, helium's about 14, 15 quid a litre. Wow, because um, we were talking, we were doing stuff with liquid nitrogen for the Freshers Fair, and we were told it was cheaper than milk. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't <laughs> no way. put it... Uh, well, actually, it might be cheaper. Yeah, that's that true. was um, yeah, yeah. Um, Paul Monday. So I trust him. But that's not helium. That's no, uh, helium no, helium is, uh, escapes very different. Exactly. Yeah, liquid helium uh, as a consumable, as something we need to run our experiments, causes me and other researchers who do low temperature measurements a great deal of sleepless nights. In terms <laughs> of you have to get the grants in to get the helium in, and it's takes. It to and we're almost running, running out of it as well. Yeah, and that of course it's a very very scarce resource, which yeah. also causes me sleepless nights. Is this the best way to be using it? You know, a scarce resource. <laughs> so we could have a long discussion about the ethics of that. Are there alternatives to helium? Um, so there are there are a number of systems that have just come online within the last few years that are definitely alternatives to helium, um, cryogen-free systems. The issue has been for many, many years, those because those systems are pumped, mm-hmm. um, the issue has always been keeping the noise level low enough. Oh, okay. And now, but now the technology's caught up so that, yes. So you're using the helium to cool the system down without creating lots of noise with pumps and yeah, bringing different exactly. machinery in. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yep. Um, what sort of like applications do you think some of these discoveries might have? Or is that quite harsh asking a nano? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone's, I did a graphene project and I spoke about it and everyone's like, what are we going to use it for? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. It's not going to be real for another 50 years. But yeah. when it is. <laughs> it's going to be the coolest thing ever. Oh, no, my God. Yeah. But um, no, that's, that's a great question. What we do is I'll make no bones about it what we do is fundamental science the driver is to understand Mm. fundamental properties um fundamental aspects of nature in that sense in terms of the overall ethos of what we're doing we're not that far removed from for example theoretical particle physicists who are trying however of course it's condensed matter and therefore there's a much stronger link to near-term application one thing we're interested in at the moment is can we make silicon magnetic 
Now, as you know, silicon is oh. not ferromagnetic. However, at the surface, if you create what are called dangling bonds, so single, uh, effectively single electron orbitals at the surface, yeah. they can have a spin character. So they can, and you can also, sorry, just hit the laptop. Again, I'm demonstrating with my hands. Again, <laughs> I'll stop that. I think, see, this is going to be a recurring theme. But you can have those spins at a surface line up ferromagnetically or antiferromagnetically. So that's intriguing because if we can get uh, silicon magnetic, um, being able to control the spin requires a lot less energy than being able to control the charge itself. Ah. And moreover, in terms of... Um, anti-ferromagnetic coupling and my colleague just across the corridor here pete wadley does a lot of research on anti-ferromagnetics again they can be much more energy efficient and much higher bandwidths than traditional uh, ferromag ferromagnets so there are applications there so i would assume that this would end up making its way into like computer science and it would be used for memory you would hope so yeah you would hope so but it's a long way down you oh know, yes of for course. one thing the experiments we're doing are at 4k yeah. Nobody's going to want to hook up their laptop to it. Oh that's right. four Kelvins, no. not. So it's a question of trying to bring 4K. that closer to room temperature. And that's, yeah. it's like high temperature superconductors. You know, they're only high temperature in the sense that it's not four Kelvin or it's, you know, not 20K. They're nowhere near Yeah, but room the thing with the high temperature superconductors as well is that they need to operate at these ridiculous densities. Yeah. So it's almost a bit of a give and take yeah. where it's impractical just in a different way yeah, exactly yeah. and we're all used to these tiny tiny laptops and tiny tiny computers and we're really wanting this really ultra fast memory we're wanting this you know these amazing computers but i think people don't realize well i can do it but at four kelvin and we're not making your computer four kelvin no so. no and there is a little bit of disingenuity i would say sometimes with regard to press releases we've That's made this amazing measurement mm. of this molecule um, and this is going to be the future of computing tech no it's not it isn't. It really isn't. Um, if it's happening at 4K in ultra-high vacuum, that's not something that's going to immediately be transferred out and come into an iPad near you anytime soon. And I the other thing as well is, although we have this drive for ever faster um, technology, we hit a wall a long time ago, I'd say a decade ago. You know, clock speeds are not going up. Oh, really? law, which you might have heard of. Yeah, yeah. And that's always been the conventional, well, it's going up 18, doubling or, if, you know, somewhere beyond doubling every 18 months or so. That's that's flatlined in terms of clock speed. For least. a decade? Uh, for roughly a decade, I would wow. say. Wow. Yeah. So that's, um, and what the industry has got a lot cleverer at, it's squeezed an awful lot out of patterning and nanolithography and making devices smaller and smaller yeah, and smaller. Yeah. But where the real emphasis now seems to be going is on the software side, making the software more efficient. Yeah, because so many companies just make their software like massive because memory is dirt cheap now. Yeah. Like these massive clunky softwares just take up gigabytes and gigabytes uh, yeah, and they do like Windows one thing. Itself, tens of gigabytes. It's yeah. just ridiculous. When I started, now I'm going to sound incredibly old because <laughs> I am, uh, back in 1981, I had a ZX81 1K RAM. You had to code. Uh, if you wanted to code, you really had to do assembly language. You had to get right down mm. into yeah. the chip and address. And that made you very efficient with coding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than you know, now you just... I'm so inefficient with my code. I think my code would probably make someone like you cry. I'm so inefficient. I'll just... I write it to make sense for my brain. And so my code is probably so inefficient. But when do I ever get tested on its efficiency? That's an interesting question. So I'm external examiner for Loughborough University who recently completely um, radically changed their, their physics degrees. They've introduced a lot more coding and they do focus a great deal on the efficiency of mm. their coding, even for their physics students, which is an interesting... 
I guess as soon as you go out into industry, that becomes an important yeah. thing. And that's what industry will look for because they will want it to be efficient because I don't care about efficiency because I've never had a piece of code take more than one second to run. Yeah. So I don't really care about the efficiency because it's not actually... So do they still learn Python or do they, they learn, learn a whole range stuff? of different languages? So they have a different ethos to us, which is an interesting one and which I sort of... Bought. What is our ethos? E our ethos is to have one platform. Ah, so okay. we, it used to be MATLAB. Now yeah. it's Python. Uh, we went through a transitory transition. Transitional phase. phase. Yeah, not yeah. Transitory. I think we were the first. Yeah, year we were the first Python, Python yeah. cohort. But there was for a number of years you could either do MATLAB or Python, and we left that choice up to students. Yeah. Just to sort of smooth things over. But that has been our ethos: is to have one platform. Loveburrs mm. is very much the opposite ethos: that you use a range of different languages, and. Having talked to some of the students there, I thought they'd really hate it, but they, they like it. They like oh, the idea of, of choosing a particular language or approach which is well matched to the problem. Yeah, well, yeah that yeah. makes sense rather than just going, oh, I have to do it with Python. Even if Python's rubbish for it, then, well, I only know how to do Python. And I think also that will probably teach you how to actually code rather than I've been taught how to use Python. They're being taught how to code and then they apply that to different situations, which again is what you'd be doing in industry because in industry, they'll give you a problem. Why on earth would you carry on doing it in Python if Python rubbish for that but yeah. just stick up for our approach <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry sorry mark um uh, you probably get a lot further with um python i'm assuming the, yeah there is that it is a standard right across physics you know if, what is the physics language it's python yeah um, and so many um researchers use it so many scientists use it right across i didn't the board. know but python is actually the standard for machine learning as well yes so exactly. all of the netflix and all the um, spotify algorithms yeah. are all done in python yeah that's so odd. Yeah. Because the library is just there. Like exactly. The state yeah. of the so we certainly, and all the machine learning we've done has been Python driven. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. It's not a world I know a lot about. And one thing I was going to go back and say is in, it was interesting that I was asking you about, you know, the applications of your discoveries. And I think that it's quite interesting how people, you know, so someone else wrote that question. And so it's interesting how people focus on the applications when obviously you're a pure scientist and you're doing science for the sake of science. And I'm sure when you were applying for funding, you're probably having to be like, oh, maybe this will maybe this will have this application. But really, you're doing it to find the science. And sometimes yeah. applications do drop out of that, which is amazing. But I think a lot of the time you're not necessarily doing it for the outcome other than the scientific. There outcomes. is. But again, coming back to sort of qualms and ethical moral qualms about this ultimately we're funded by the taxpayer yeah and so from the taxpayer perspective there needs to be a return in investment now that return in investment can be cultural yeah you know that's in that sense we're close to the arts and humanities in terms of fundamental science and you're con contributing to an overall culture or it can be economic or it can be socio-economic sometimes depending on what you're doing can even be socio-political so there's a wide range of different returns on investment that there can be so yeah fair enough so i thought we could go on to talk a bit about the quantum world module because so we've got a lot of um freshers who are going to be listening to our podcast and hopefully of, they're going to be listening and and then so we'll have some second years and some people who'll be going into your module so i thought mm -hmm. now is a great time during freshers week now's a great time to discuss the module and what yeah. they'll be expecting so both myself and nikhil we've both taken your module how did we you did it online it? uh as we were saying before, because I was talking about the YouTube videos. I don't know if that was on the recording. Yes, it was. It was, yeah. Edit that bit out. <laughs> Sorry. How did you How did you find the module? What did you think? I really enjoyed it? the module, actually. So I thought that it was, it was just an incredibly interesting module. Well, quantum is incredibly interesting, definitely. 
I think it was very different from any other physics I had done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all just applied theory analysis, though. I make that a point about 500 oh, times. Oh, yeah. So I found when I went into it, I found it, you know, very overwhelming. I think I came to Fresh Moriarty about 20 times, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and I what did I say? It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And was it okay for her? It was okay for her. And so, so Fresh Moriarty teaches the autumn semester and then the spring semester. Is it Walter Cock and... Yeah. yeah. Walter Cock Is it still Walter? It is still Walter, yeah. I went to him loads of times because I just did not understand what So he's he a very good lecturer. About. He's very, very knowledgeable about yeah. the topic. He's, um, he's brilliant. And so I think I came to both of you going, I don't know what I'm doing and I I kept handing in my coursework and I've I hate to say it, but I've never failed anything before ever and my coursework grade was on a fail grade going into that exam and so that's why I was so stressed because I just kept getting back these coursework that I'd spent you know hours on and I was like I don't know how I'm going to pull this back in the exam and then about two weeks before the exam something just clicked and I was like oh my god this yeah, is so easy it's one of those ones that comes together and especially like, when we learn about the mathematical nuts and bolts of Fourier transforms, which was in the second semester. Which is in wave phenomena. So yeah. we've had long discussions about trying to align that in first semester. It doesn't work out for a range of different... Something things. to do with like mathematical physics. Yeah. yeah. Another of courses. So it's a bit of a shame. Uh, I certainly in first semester give you as much Fourier analysis as I can to uh, to get you over that hurdle. But yes, I avoid going into really the deep mathematical basis which is annoying because that's the best bit sorry uh, which is annoying because that's the best bit for a transformers for a mathematics yeah it's interesting the, uh, the mathematical physicists i guess and theoretical physicists would say that for me the best bit is how it connects to the real world yeah, yeah. so uh -huh. i found that it all clicked when i finally understood dirac notation so right uh, at the end i think you bring dirac notation a little yeah. bit in towards christmas but only like one or two yeah. lectures and then kind of Walter came into it and I didn't kind of gel with it. And I was really, really, and he kept putting these things up and I was going, how, like, he's lying to me. How is this? <laughs> like, because people who don't know direct notation, it very much is just like a few symbols and then suddenly everything equals zero. Yeah, but that's yeah. the, that's and the that's beauty the of it, isn't it? Yeah. But I kept being like, he'd be like, oh, what does that equal? And I'd go zero and he'd be like, no, it equals one. And I'd be like, how? And and, it's, and then I finally realised like, oh, duh. <laughs> I mean, Ortho orthogonality and orthonormality and are wonderful things. I yeah. understood, yeah, orthogon orthogonality and orthonormality. I was like, oh my goodness, this is You're so much alone. easier. You're not alone. I've had Everything... lots of students. Yeah, everyone finds it confusing. Like yeah. And I think what confused me as well was the whole infinitely long vector thing yeah. Yeah. because even now i'm like if i were to begin writing this infinite vector what would it look like yeah but it's interesting you 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 balk at that but you don't but you balk less because i guess you're more used to it in terms of an infinite series you know a Fourier yeah, yeah, series yeah, yeah, yeah. is an infinite series yeah. Yeah. and it's exactly that, the same it might be because i like theoretical so i just hear infinitely long and i go oh yeah sure but the yeah, problem so is like, i guess what, you're getting what, this what does how this do i Oh no! So yeah, so as soon as that all came together, I really, really, actually, it did click. And I think when waves came into play as well, that's when things suddenly started clocking into place. And so I guess my advice for any uh, is it second year? Is a second year core module, isn't yeah. it? I guess my advice for any second year um, students going into it is just trust the process and trust Professor Moriarty when he says Don't it will panic. all come together. In Moriarty, we trust. <laughs> Honestly. Oh, that's a very maxim to have in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, as I said quite a few times during your year, don't panic, don't panic, don't. I, it, it seems alien. And the, the issue with second year, for those who are starting second year, first semester, 
there's no two ways about this. It is a difficult semester because you're hit with quantum, you're yeah. hit with vector calculus, you're hit with electromagnetism, you're hit with a lot of new ideas. I think and the jump between well. first and second year was more intense than A-levels to first year. People say that, but I think people forget how bad A-levels to first year was because I think people say that and I think that... I didn't think it was too bad. <laughs> My one gripe was they didn't teach us... Um, differential equations they taught us shm and then they taught us differential equations which makes no sense and i'm still really mad about it to this day if you can't tell so that was confusing to me yeah um usually we teach one of the bugbears we have is sometimes when you have mathematicians teaching a general maths class to physicists they do exactly that without taking the the physics into account they don't discuss it in the context so we were the first year to get taught that module by physicists so i think it was dr die it was dr hawker who taught us shm and differential equations dr die did the first semester dr die did first semester yeah okay but you you were doing a general maths at the same time that was general maths run by physics it's run by physics now it used to be run by maths mathematical methods for physics or something like that That's that's what it was called interesting so yeah i found the quantum world i found it challenging but yeah it's something that as soon as it clicked with me, I was like, oh, I really enjoy this. And now I've gone on. So I've gone on from, you know, stressing and crying to first Moriarty about it to now I've chosen to do my third year project in um, quantum. So it's something and I'm doing a um, theoretical project as well. So maybe he'll have me knocking on his door crying a few more times <laughs> <laughs> if he's lucky. Uh, yeah, no, that's great. That's that's really, really great success story to hear. Fantastic. Yeah. What was your journey through physics like? You know, how did you find the degree? I was not a great student. Um, I did. Nor am I. Interesting. I heard that from <laughs> um, Professor. Head of head of department. Mark, Mark Fromhold. Yeah, I heard that from Mark Fromhold as well. He said almost the exact same thing that he wasn't a good student as well, which is interesting. I was a terrible student. Um, I did so in Ireland. Stepping back a little bit, was stuck in. Stepping back a lot in terms of journeys through physics. What got me into physics as a 10-year-old, and I had a great deal of fun doing a a video with Brady uh, for 60 Symbols on this a few years back, was my uncle was a radio amateur, so he was very much into crystal radio and radio transmitters and radio receivers. And you can build a radio, uh, an AM radio, very, very simply with four components, a diode, inductor, a capacitor, and just have an antenna, which you can just string out the window. And um, you can also, you don't even need an amplifier. You can use what's called a piezoelectric ear piece. Very, very small um, changes in voltage will, will generate um, uh, a signal from this. You put it in your ear, you tune your thing up, and like there's no power source, there's no battery. There's wow. Yeah. And out of the ether, you hear sounds and realizing as a 10 year where's the power and then you realize well it's actually it's come from the radio waves the it's exactly it's come from the radio waves themselves and then the record right. and that was a really eye-opening experience for me and that's really where i started getting heavily into physics i was also interested in going out in the back garden and looking up at the stars and stuff but then i got drawn much more towards the quantum side of things that was yeah. the same as me i was really, really into astronomy when i first came to my degree and i you know i think that is something that draws a lot of people in is 
the astrophysics and the astronomy because I think that that's something that isn't really touched on in school. Um, also, at the root of it, the pretty pictures are very cool. Yeah. Whereas the... boring graphs are kind of boring. Unless you about, know what they mean. But the great thing about scanning tunneling microscopy and AFMs or microscopy is you, yeah. you, we have images. Yeah, you in have some fact, good images. some of the best conversations I've had, research conversations, have not been with other probe microscopists. It's with being, ast being with astronomers. Yeah. We do image analysis. What do they do? They do image analysis and pattern analysis. What do we do? Image analysis and pattern analysis. What's interesting, they do their image analysis differently than we do in oh, our really? community. So you talk to them and you can get ideas from yeah, them. So yeah, that's yeah. a good way of doing it and bring that in. So anyway, yeah, so I did that and then did physics, chemistry and biology um, for the equivalent of A-levels. In Ireland, we do something called Leaving Certificate, which is seven so no subjects. Subject and maths, yeah, yeah. No, so, it's, so seven subjects, not three. Oh. So oh. It's, in Ireland, it's kind of like an it's, IB. It's a bit more, much more like the IB, ah, exactly. Okay. So uh, seven subjects amongst those: uh, maths and English, which are both mandatory, yeah. and Irish. Irish. We're not a fan of languages. We'll not talk about that. Well, I, everyone gets forced to learn Irish yes, in Ireland, don't they? Yes. And no one really likes Irish. Oh well, no, some people do. Lots of people do. Let's. I don't want to have a sorry. But lots of people who get Irish physicists descending. Who lots of people who get forced into it then don't like it because they're forced into yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Learning a language is a very specific Precisely. skill that I don't oh, have. I was at a Catholic all boys school, so Ooh. yes, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> enough said about that. Then I did a leaving certificate and then went on to do a degree in applied physics at Dublin City University, which... Uh, coincidentally, I will be visiting tomorrow for the first time in years to, oh. to give a seminar there, which I'm very, oh. very happy about. I'll see my PhD supervisor and some friends Are and some colleagues there? from the AI. Yeah, yeah, still there. Nice. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to that. So, but during my degree at uh, Dublin City University, I, it was a four year degree. I failed the third year. Oh, no, you didn't get the ons. I, I, it's all about the ons. Uh, you know, well, it's interesting. I repeated third year, managed to get enough, um, and then went into fourth year, carrying uh, effectively a pass mark in third year. Oh. Worked and worked and worked in fourth year, enough to get me up to a 2-1, which allowed me to do a PhD. Ah. But the key thing is this, and what I like to tell tutees when they come, you know, they miss an exam or they're in tears and they haven't quite got the result they wanted. Although it seems like the end of the world, it's often isn't because if I hadn't a failed third year, I'd have drifted through fourth year, yeah, probably yeah, yeah, yeah. got a yeah. pass mark and I would not be doing this job. And I love this job. Yeah. So it's, it's strange, you know, sometimes how life works out. What it do you gave think? you that kind of motivation that you needed to then pull up your socks. I guess like, obviously it's in a much smaller scale, but I guess that's what happened when I had those fail grade coursework. So I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? And that's what made me work so hard to, move it up so i guess that kind of gave me the motivation i needed to be like okay i'm struggling at this i need to reassess this and i need to work harder at this so i guess yeah. if you'd got an okay-ish mark and just got through you'd have just carried on i think i went through the same thing actually at the end of last year because i took theoretical elementary particle physics by paul uh, yes and i was terrible at it i got like he's 49 my, uh, he's my project and i was like yeah, big regret because I just sort of didn't do any theory modules and I got to the third year and I was like, that module looks cool. I'll just take it. And I had no clue what was going on. And so now I'm like, okay, I need to really pick my modules well and like be tactical about it if I want to get to where I want to be. I think there definitely is an element of picking modules about, you know, what do I want to do in the future as well as what am I good at? I yeah. Think that 
it is a combination of the two rather than just going, oh, this one sounds cool because there are some that, you know, there aren't necessarily prerequisites, but there are recommendations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, follow the recommendations. Oh, 100%. But I think the only thing for me that I would say is that when you're picking the modules in second year, it doesn't really, there's no way of grasping that that module leads into something else, which I don't know if was something wrong with my personal research or like with the resources available because when I was looking at the modules I was doing, I didn't know what it would lead into, like what the end goal of the entire set of modules throughout the three-year degree was. So I guess that would be something that maybe you'd recommend to lower years. Would you recommend to them to like talk to their mentors about then talk about, you know, what was that module like? Talk to the high years, go, you know, join FizzSock and come on a bar crawl yeah. and ask me about modules in, um, no, but <laughs> in the club. Maybe not the bar crawl. Honestly, <laughs> what, I would, what I would recommend is looking at the third and fourth year modules and then working backwards. So seeing like what I want to do is this, which I guess when you're finishing first year, there's not a lot that you can really know about what you want to go into. I don't know what I'm going to specialize in in my master's title yet. I haven't picked it. But like working backwards always helps for me. I guess that's just how my brain worked. So we've gone through undergrad. Mm -hmm. So did you do the master's combined? Is that what the four years were? Or was it a four-year bachelor's? It was a four-year BSC, um, which is pretty much the norm in Ireland. Uh, it's also the norm in Scotland, yes, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this idea that you yeah. do abroad or leave in certain um, secondary school exams, yeah. and therefore you don't have the depth of... Um, that you have with with A levels, that's that's the general idea. So you need that extra year at the start. It's like that liberal arts type philosophy as well, where everyone learns a bit of everything. Yeah, which I think makes sense because choosing the A levels so young, you know, sixteen picking three subjects is very very rough. I agree. I picked four, which was actually a shell. If I'd picked three, I would have failed one of my A levels, and then I would just have. Been would you have lost. picked the wrong one? Yeah, I would have picked the wrong one. So you were I sixteen did, when you picked it. So yeah, she would. So I did maths, physics, obviously, uh, chemistry, and music technology. Oh, interesting. And um, I was gonna drop music technology, and then I bombed chemistry because I got a D in like. A level chemistry is harsh. Yeah, like the the AS. I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see it. I didn't sit the actual exam. But I failed it. I'm like, yep, I'm dropping that. And so I just did. Whereas you wouldn't have taken music technology yeah. as a third, yeah. Mm. I'd have loved to have done a music technology. Oh, level. it was in great. In fact, after my degree, the, before I considered even doing a PhD, that was my preferred choice would be to go into sound engineering. So, But the problem was at the time, everybody was going into sound. Everybody was either in a band or going into sound engineering. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Dublin, so, yeah. But it's so accessible now. You can, like, download a door for free exactly. and you can just teach it to yourself. It's so easy now. Like, you can just make a song on your laptop mm -hmm. and even these people that, like, go multi-platinum, they just do everything off of a Mac in Logic, which is yeah. the best software ever. But Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm um, writing something at the moment, uh, editing it, putting it together on something called Reaper, which is a door, which is a digital audio workstation. One aspect is it's just not as much fun as if you're standing in a garage um, in a band playing yeah, with others. Yeah, yeah. Everything locked to a sodding grid. Yeah. Everything. Ah, so I, it's, it's, I enjoy writing. Yeah, but that's the other you, thing. You do moving everything digitally. Um, I know this is a gripe for people of my generation, but there, you do miss out on something. Even no, but mixing with your eyes is a massive problem now. So when I was like editing the previous one, I would literally just close my eyes so I didn't see the meters. 
just so I could get it to sound good from here rather than look good from my eyes. Yeah, and the whole cut and paste, we'll take that section and just cut and paste it through. Oh, no, you don't want to do that. That's soulless. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But it happens a lot. So that's what you were thinking when you left your bachelor's. Is that correct? Is that what you were thinking? Oh, maybe Freya gets us back on track. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not an area I know a lot about. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So and then I wasn't thinking about doing a PhD, but at the same time as the uh, letter about and it was letter in those days, not emails. um, (laughs) It was uh, the, the letter arrived about graduation. In that uh, letter, there was another, there was an advert for a PhD position, which was with STM, involved in STM, and I'd been, I was familiar. Oh, is that familiar. where you did your, is that where you did your um, PhD in? Yeah, my PhD was on Skype. So I've did been you doing go straight from your bachelor's to your PhD? I did, yeah. yeah because I've always thought the natural progression was bachelor's, master's, PhD, no. postdoc. So you don't even have to do, even here in Nottingham now, you don't have to do the master's to do a PhD out of... Um, Student, PhD student from a few years back who uh, was originally the, on the MSI, yeah. uh, realised he didn't need an MSI to do a PhD, transferred to the BSC, so he did three years of BSC and then went into his PhD. Oh, fair enough. That's, that's I, another no one cares about possible. the MSI if you've got a PhD. So uh, Possibly, um, that, but well. there are benefits to the MSI yeah. oh, beyond, sure, yeah. um, beyond that. But yes, in principle, here the problem is that's okay for Nottingham physics. Yeah. Other places, even Nottingham chemistry, just across the way, they don't like they, it. They, they, you have to have a master's to go into a PhD program. Yeah. So. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So you went and did your PhD, and it was an STM, and you've been doing STM ever since. Ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And so, did for you thirty do... years? Yeah, I started my PhD in nineteen ninety, so it's a long time. Wow. Wow. So you did the PhD? Did you do that at Dublin City as well? I did that at Dublin City University, but a large amount of the PhD, well, nine months in total. It wasn't nine months continuously in Germany, but to and fro uh, to Germany um, cool. to the That's German exciting. equivalent of the National Physical Lab. So. PTB as it's called in so a place y- called Braunschweig. Not the most exciting city in ta- in on the earth, but it was it was a is good Nottingham place to do a the PhD. most exciting city oh, in there? Nottingham, yeah, I mean if I you're a student Nottingham. it's pretty good. It is yeah. pretty good, but I would never like say it was the most exciting city on the earth. Yeah. yeah. I like Nottingham a lot. So you've been doing STM for like thirty years now. Yeah, yeah. What is the biggest change that you have seen with your own eyes? Oh in the oh that's a good it must really be a good massive question. change. Into, well, some aspects remain the same. One aspect that has been a key bugbear, continual perennial bugbear, is that with STM, it's a wonderful technique. You can see individual atoms, you can see individual molecules. The state of the art now is, is to get beyond single atom resolution, really get down to probe you know, chemical bonds, single chemical bonds, manipulate those. But everything revolves around the tip, the probe, the apex of the probe. That's a problem that was as big an issue back in 1990 as it is now. But I suppose that's unavoidable. That's like the nature of the beast. If there's no tip, there's no STM. Precisely. But one thing we're trying to do ourselves and a number of other groups across the world are trying to do is to bring machine learning and artificial Ah. intelligence in to coerce that tip into the right state. I see. So that's, that's a change I hope happens within the next few years that so would be a major change so if i remember change. from my quantum world um you know lectures so is it the fact that you're trying to get the tip to be you know one atomically small so you're trying to get this so basically it's like you know a, a needle on a record player right and it's a needle and it's dragging over the surface like there's a gap between yeah, them obviously yeah, yeah. and 
So to rather than having it sharp, you want it sharp to the atomic level, Precisely. right? Precisely. Yeah, and it's it's not even just to the atomic level. It's the the state of the art is you know do we have an s orbital do we have a p orbital oh, do we have wow. a d yeah so it's right down to in fact one technique that we use a lot which was pioneered by the group at IBM Zurich but they invented the the STM in the first place so they know what they're doing uh, is to well, pick up a so. CO molecule a carbon monoxide molecule and that has uh, nicely sharp localized orbitals that you can use to get very high resolution uh-huh. so, yeah but i remember i th- might have been you or might have been someone else. I was just sat in a nanophysics lecture for something or or other. And there's apparently a sort of debate about like whether getting the tip right is actually good science because you go and you look at it and it's like, that doesn't look right. We're doing something wrong. We need to fix it, which is usually not how science yeah, goes. That's not oh, the I scientific agree. method. I agree entirely. Yeah. So at, I I have made that point before. It is a bit worrying in that. How do you know when the tip's in the right state? Sometimes it's, well, we get images that look like the images that blogs at all published three months ago. We yeah. get images that look like we expect rather than yeah, getting yeah, images yeah, yeah. and going, what's going on in that image? But, Precisely. but on the other side of that, it's like if you take a picture using your camera and it's all... <laughs> blurry your knee-jerk thought is oh there's something on the lens rather than the entire planet is blurry that's true but the problem is it's you not know just what the planet looks like yeah. so you've already Th- that's exactly it mm. yeah and so... you would know what the surface is supposed to look like uh, Only theoretically, sometimes though. but if it's if it's if it's a brand new surface that hasn't been studied before true, you true, don't true. but moreover it's it's also and if it were a question of blurry versus non-blurry the problem is that with scanning probes, it can be uh, very, very nonlinear and very, very difficult to interpret if you've got a, uh, you know, a, a tip that isn't great. For one thing, uh, do that. <laughs> but one thing you can have are double or triple or quadruple tips, where yeah. you have more than one center that's involved in the image creation, and then you have overlapping images, and then it gets very difficult to work out what's going on. Yeah. Interesting. Um. So I guess the last bit we're going to talk about is a bit of your, you know, your hobbies and interests outside of work. Um, So I guess I'll talk a bit about your work with 60 Symbols and Mm -hmm. Science Communication. So you are very, very passionate about that. I know that from just knowing you that that's something that you really, really preach about. What makes you so you know passionate about science communication? What do you think inspires you to do that? I get well there are a number of different reasons as I said before in terms of how we're funded you know the taxpayer the person in the street whatever term you want to use they're funding us so I see we've almost an obligation to describe explain what we're doing that's sort of the more pragmatic I guess top level aspect of it but it's just a hell of a lot of fun Mm, I enjoy teaching a lot if there's you know People ask about scientists typically when they get to the end of their career, what's your legacy? What are you most yeah. proud of in terms of the results? It's not so much the results we get. It's the people that have come out of the group, the people who've been trained within the group, the people I've collaborated with, yeah. and the students I've interacted with. That's, people that's, love talking about what they love as well. Yeah. So it's Exactly. So, yeah, and uh, it's always great fun interacting with Brady. He and I argue a lot, but that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And also Sean Riley, who's the guy who does the computer file editing and, oh, yeah, and filming. He's fantastic as well. So, yeah, um, but that's that's my motivation. Uh, but the core motivation is probably because it's fun. Yeah, I yeah, guess if enough. you're passionate about what you do, you want to share that with people. Um, 
I've, I have looked at teaching uh, teaching physics and I decided it wasn't for me to be honest but then I guess I was looking at lower level teaching rather than being a professor but lower level teaching doesn't quite there's a big difference between secondary school teaching and oh and yeah, yeah, lecturing. yeah that's Huge what difference. I think that's yeah. what I think but I don't want to do the PhD so not <laughs> least because the majority perhaps not all but the majority of undergraduate students are pretty well motivated which is not the case at yeah, secondary yeah, yeah. school or even college I guess as well interesting um and then also, I know I'm sure we hear um, dribs and drabs of it that you are, you know, very into your rock music. And you used to play as, I remember on some of our um, The Quantum World videos, you yeah. play as a little jingle at the beginning. <laughs> and that was right at the beginning and before it got a bit stressful and things got hectic and that got cut out really quickly. <laughs> that that's true. That's true. Yeah, I used but, to spend a little bit of time. So it's good that you've um, raised that. Yes, I'm a big Big rock and metal fan, not just rock and metal. There's a lot of music I like, but you know, rock if I'm going to dial something up on Spotify, it's going to be rock and metal. Or I'm going to pull out. It's actually even some vinyl up there. Oh, Rush's yeah, there farewell is a bit of vinyl up there. Marillion's misplaced childhood. It's all shuffled in between the physics books. I cannot see it. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 oh, yeah, I'll show you later. Um, so this is timely because I'm hoping you can get involved. Many years ago, ten years ago now, almost pretty well exactly to the day Brady and I collaborated with a guy called Dave Brown who's a YouTuber uh, does a lot of music stuff uh, producer songwriter etc and we did a song based around the golden ratio I think I remember that where oh, we took the digits um, of the golden ratio and mapped them across to different scales yeah in particular harmonic minor scale and then based a song around those what I've wanted to do and it's taken 10 years to actually find a slot of time <laughs> that could do it is to do that, but not so much from the maths perspective, but from the quantum physics perspective. So to have a song based around the Schrodinger equation. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Where, again, the the rhythms, the lyrics, the riffs are based around the Schrodinger equation. So would it be the Schrodinger equation itself or solutions? Well, that's that remains to be seen. So <laughs> where the idea this time is not to tell everybody what we've done, which is what we did with the Golden Ratio song. Put the song out there and say to the 60 symbols, 60 symbols audience, how many physics links can you find? Yeah. And it's not just what we did with the Golden Ratio. There are some subtle links. There are some not so subtle links, which I'm not going to tell you about. But it's called Shut Up and Calculate. Are you familiar with this phrase from quantum mechanics? Yes, I think Vaguely, I remember you saying yeah. it a couple of times. So yeah. there's um, the traditional view of quantum mechanics when you're teaching it is to avoid all the many, many philosophical difficulties that we have in terms of what the hell is the wave function. <laughs> to be honest, that would have made the uh, module That's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, but the problem is we don't it's know difficult. the answer to the question. Well, it's not just difficult. We do not know the answer to that question. What do you is think the wave we'll function? ever be able to know? Sorry. Well, that's an interesting question. There's a huge amount of debate as to, well, is the wave function telling telling us about reality out there or is it telling us about our information on yeah. reality out there? And those are different things. Or yeah, is it, yeah. it just telling us about our information and is there a reality out there? There's all of these different... So they talk about in um, more technical philosophical terms, they talk about the ontological versus epistemological aspects of the wave function. Yes. So there are <laughs> many, many questions which makes teaching it a great, great challenge because we have to go, right, here's a wave function. We can't see... It's not an experimental observable, the wave function, but what we can see is a probability density, the charge density. But the problem is if you start as an undergrad you were thinking about what does it all mean you yeah. very rapidly go down the rabbit hole so yes. there's this piece of advice which is 
many people think it came from Richard Feynman. It didn't. It's almost certainly from a guy called David Merman, which is shut up and calculate. Just stop with the, the sort of philosophical meanderings because if you do that, you're just going to go down the rabbit hole and yeah. you'll never escape. Well, one thing I didn't like about the Schrodinger equation is I was like looking it up in a book to write it down. And it was like, this equation cannot be derived or proven. Just take it. And I was like, oh no, I've got whole modules based off an equation that... But we can go back. Yeah, but we can go not, back even further. P is, P is equal to H over lambda. De Brauli, you accept oh, yeah. that? That's a postulate. That is, uh, what is, he is what's the word? Lambo, is that only a postulate? Yeah, it's not, it's not proved. No. It's the same thing as F You're equals just MA. Assuming. It, you can't really prove F equals MA. Well, uh, yeah. you, you can to, uh, to uh, but the well. First of all, there are no proofs in science. So yeah. that's, that's one thing. <laughs> but with um, F is equal to MA, at least we can have um, some... Uh, how can I put it, convergence with the reality? With yeah, P, yeah, P, yeah, P, yeah. P and H, and you can extract it all the way back. And you can, you know, you could use finite differences. You can look at that in a range of different ways. But P is equal to H over lambda was that, was pulled yeah. out of the air. Yeah, I've now realised, yeah, I don't remember where Let's that. just assume that... Um, What's the word for it? Um, it was derived empirically, right? Uh, yeah, it's an empirical observation in that you can, uh, you know, for example, one thing we do in the lab a lot is do low energy electron diffraction. So you send electrons at a crystal surface, you see a diffraction pattern. You can look at that and you can think and interpret that in terms of those electrons having a wavelength. This is what we, we cover in quantum a lot. But in terms of de Broglie, de Broglie didn't work all the way back and then suddenly out pops P is equal to H over lambda. Yeah. He assumed that as an axiom and then uh, whatever. My man was just it. guessing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes that's... So that's... We could have a whole discussion about that. You know, yeah. one thing that really drives me up the wall is this idea that over here we have the sciences and over here we have the arts and humanities. No, and the arts same. and humanities is the creative side of things where the sciences were all drones and we just churn numbers. There's just much creativity involved in, and oh, that's a very good example. Yeah, I've got a friend who's a, a mathematician, and he's you know studying maths in Oxford, and he's like, oh, well, if you really get into it, I guess maths is more of an art than a science. And I was like, oh no, don't! I don't want to hear it. It's a really good question. Do we discover maths, or do we invent maths? You know, the Mandelbrot set's a great mm -hmm. example. You know, there's this landscape that's out there that's infinitely, literally, infinitely deep. Did we invent that, or did we discover that? In a sense, it's always been waiting there to be discovered. Yeah, but we because, need it because that's the thing: is maths, the truths in maths are defined perfection. A perfect circle is a perfect circle because yeah. it's defined that way. Yeah. So it's like because we've defined it like that. Does that mean we've created it? But circles already exist. It's a really, really everywhere. good question. It's why Dirac delta functions, which we have to do at great length in the first semester of the quantum world, and you both have done. They're an idealization. Plane yeah. waves are an idealization, but they're a very helpful idealization in terms of helping us understand the real world. Anyway, after anyway, where we were we? After that we were talking about um, rock music. Yeah, we were talking music. about rock music. Yeah, and yeah, okay. So the song that was it. Shut up oh, and calculate. Oh, the Schrodinger song. That's yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's where we came from. Yeah, right. Anyway, what I want to do <laughs> is get. So, are you familiar? There's a Pink Floyd song called "Another Brick in the Wall," yes. which is we don't need Rings no education. Yeah. There's loads of school yeah. kids singing. What I want to do for this song yeah, no, no, no. is get tons of students into B1 or another lecture theatre. I've cleared this with our head of school, so it's, <laughs> it's fine. Talk to Brady about it, and he's fine to do it. So we'd have Brady in uh, filming it uh, for 60 Symbols. But to get you into a lecture theatre, not just you two, 